We are reading this morning from Leviticus 25, verses 8 to 22. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all the land, all your land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. In it, you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines. For it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the jubilee, and he shall sell to you according to the number of years for crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price. And if the years are few, you shall reduce the price, for it is the number of the crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. Therefore you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them, and then you will dwell in the land securely. The land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year, if we may not sow or gather our crop? I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when its crop arrives. All right. How's that for confusing? All right. And um, so let's begin with looking back to 1999. Who remembers that glorious age? It wasn't that long ago, but I know a lot of people are that young. They don't remember it. But when we began to switch from the 20th century to the 21st century, you may recall there was a lot of people looking both backwards and forwards. Some were looking back and thinking, what had we done in the 20th century? And, and kind of reflecting, taking stock of what we've done, what we had done. Others were looking forward with fear and trepidation to the new millennium. You may recall, who remembers the Y2K situation? Remember we were all afraid that Bill Gates hadn't figured out how to use a clock? And... Um, and if we messed it up, we'd all be who knows where. Um, it's just a lot of fear. I mean, a lot of people, in fact, people in our family were storing up, you know, water and preparing for what could be, you know, a, a catastrophe. Of course, nothing happened. Dick Clark was still alive, I think, and everything went well on New Year's Eve, and um, everything was good. But there was anxiety. And one of the things people were anxious about was debt. And this happens a lot. Throughout the history of humanity, we worry about our debt, and come the new millennium, people started to reflect back and think, boy, we, a lot of our problems in the world are because the poor nations are indebted and poor people are indebted, and how can we relieve this? So it's natural that whenever the world starts to worry about economics, and especially when the threat of depression and a recession is coming, you always see the economists and the writers in the newspapers start talking about jubilee. They start becoming Christians all of a sudden and Jews. And they start thinking we should apply Jubilee. And one such writer, and there's many, but in 1999, a guy named uh, Will Hutton, uh, he was writing for the London Observer, and he wrote this. At the end of an increasingly secular century, it has been the biblical proof and moral imagination of religion 
that have torched the principles of the hitherto unassailable citadels of international finance and opened the way to a radicalism about capitalism whose ramifications are not yet fully understood. In a nutshell, he is saying, Jubilee, Jubilee. Let's rid the world of debt. The world's a mess. Let's just forgive the debt and everything will be okay. Or at least we can start fresh. And he's not alone. That happens all the time. Everything. We think we're very unique. We're not. We've been saying the same things for millennia. And recently, when COVID hit, the same thing started to happen. There's a, a number of organizations that exist today. In fact, just Google Jubilee and Debt Relief, and you're going to see how many organizations are currently petitioning our government and many other governments to cancel debt, to either cancel consumer debt for us in our homes or national debts of poorer countries to allow them to have a chance in this world. And one example that happened because of right around COVID, because this has caused a great strain on the economy, the COVID situation. And one of them is in the Washington Post. Another guy named Michael Hudson a year ago wrote this. Massive social distancing with its accompanying job losses, stock dives, and huge bailouts to corporations raises the threat of a depression. But it doesn't have to be this way. History offers us another alternative in such situations, a debt jubilee. This slate-cleaning, balance-restoring step recognizes the fundamental truth that when debts grow too large to be paid without reducing debtors to poverty, the way to hold society together and restore balance is simply to cancel the bad debts. Now, this is very common, and there's precedent historically. The Jews have this in their Bible, of course, in Leviticus, but we know the Assyrians and various other ancient cultures every once in a while would offer debt relief. And more recently, in 2008, Iceland wiped out and wrote off millions in mortgages for people because of the 2008 recession. So it's not unprecedented. But let me suggest this. I think that there is a terrible flaw in the secular idea, in the secular world, when they think that they can adopt the Jubilee to our present context. And the problem, the flaw in, in saying, let's just adopt the Jubilee, has nothing to do with economics. It has everything to do with Christmas. Okay, so I'm going to try to sustain that thesis for you for the next few minutes. And I think if we look carefully at what we just read in Leviticus 25 and, and elsewhere as well, you're going to see what we're going to have to learn. We're going to have to learn what Jubilee is because it's, it's quite confusing, but I'm going to walk us through it. So we're going to see what it is it. So what is Jubilee? Why was it even given to us in the first place? What's God trying to do with it? And then why does it fall short? Why is it not enough? Why do we need Christmas? Okay, so what is it? Why was it given, and why we, it's not enough? So what is it? So what is it? It's the, the chapter 25 begins with God not talking about Jubilee, but about something called the Sabbath year. And he says, hey, Israel, you are going to work your farmland for six years, but on the seventh year, you're going to let it lay fallow. It's going to rest. Just like we rest on the Sabbath, so does the land. It makes good agricultural sense. Because uh, if you just continually work the land, eventually it becomes a dust bowl. You can exhaust the land. So we know, even now, that you crop, you do rotations and so on. So it makes sense agriculturally. And now the challenge, of course, for Israel was they had to trust that they would have enough food without going into the fields and working their fields. So God says, don't worry, on the sixth year, I'm going to give you a lot, and it's going to last for three years. And we're going to talk about why that's important in a second. But he also says something that seems, this confused people in the first service, I noticed. He says, don't touch anything in the fields. But then he ends in verse 12, you may eat the produce of the field. What's he saying? 
what he means is, you can't, don't touch the cultivated lands, but anything that's growing wild, naturally, in fields that aren't farmland, you can go, you can use that. So, foraging and so on. So, this requires a good deal of faith, but that's the Sabbath year. And then in verse 8, where we started, he turns his attention and says, now, every seven years you have a Sabbath year. Now, if you do seven cycles of that, so seven times seven times seven, and so well, seven times seven, only once actually, gets you to 49. So after you've done, had seven Sabbath years, on that 49th year, that seventh Sabbath, something special happens. On the Day of Atonement, which this coming year, I think is October 3rd or 4th, um, on that Day of Atonement, you are to blow a ram's horn, the shofar. Oddly enough, the word jubilee is the Hebrew word yobel, which means ram. Uh, it makes it called the year of the ram, call it what you'd like. And you blow this horn, and when you blow that horn, the year of jubilee commences, and four things happen, okay? Very simple, four things. The first one is rest for the land. So this is the, this is the crazy part. Imagine not going to Costco for three years. Um, <laughs> He says, okay, on the four, you blow the horn on the 49th year, but remember, you haven't had crops in the 49th year because that's a Sabbath year. So you've gone one year without crops. The 50th year, the year of Jubilee, no crops, no touch of land. It's, it's a, a rest year, so that's two years. And then the third year, the 51st year, if you want to call it that, or the first year of the new cycle, that year, you can eat of the field, but you're not going to get it right away because you're planting. So the food won't come in until the harvest shows up. So essentially, God is saying, at the year of Jubilee, the land rests and you eat nothing fresh for three years. That is an incredible amount of faith in the ancient world, especially. You see, and we find ways around it, don't we? Like we just, wait, we just eat the produce from Mexico when we can't get it here. That's, we find ways around. This wasn't an option for Israel. So that's the first thing that the year of Jubilee says, the land rests. The second thing is you return to the land. So in the course of the 49 years, if something had gone wrong or you had leased out your land or mortgaged it or lost it in a craps game or anything else, on the 49th year, you return to your ancestral land. Okay? Pretty simple. The third thing that happens, freedom for slaves. If in the course of that 49 years, you had fallen on hard times and had to sell yourself as an indentured servant to somebody, then after 49 years, you're free. The last thing is debts, and this is where we touch on the mis misunderstood part of this, this observance, is you have debts, and you are to pay them off before the end of the Jubilee, as you're going to see in a minute. But if there happen to be outstanding debts when the trumpet sounds, they're forgiven. Okay? Those are the four things you get. That's the four basic things, but I'm going to walk through it really slowly. So there's a rest for the land, return to the land, freedom for slaves, end of debts. Those four things. Now... To help you understand this, how it worked practically, I'm going to use a very simple illustration, hopefully, as simple as I can, because I know this part can be confusing. Imagine you're a young farmer, and you decide, I want to farm, I want to start farming. But you don't have money to start a farm in Israel. So you don't turn to a stranger, because the land has to stay in the family. So what you do is you turn to an elderly, wealthy uncle, perhaps. And you say, uncle, I'm going to be a farmer, but I need startup money. So the uncle says, here is $100,000 for you. It's a gift for you to start your business. Now, then, here's what happens. The uncle is very clearly told, when I lend the money to my nephew, I don't charge interest. No interest is allowed. I give, and everything he pays me back is principal only, unlike Visa 
unlike TD, only principal, no interest ever. And the terms have to be fair. So when, he, so when he's trying to think about how he's going to get this, his nephew to pay him back, he has to decide how long is it going to take and how much is he going to pay. So everything is fixed by God to avoid corruption. So he says, when you're determining the length of time of how much he has to pay back and how long, he says, look at the years of the Jubilee. If you are 10 years before the next Jubilee, let's say it's, I'm in, I'm, want the money now, but the Jubilee year is 2030. Well, that, well, let's say I have 10 years before the Jubilee, okay? Then the uncle says, okay, I'm giving you 100,000. There's 10 years before the debts get forgiven. So you have 10 years to pay this back, which means $10,000 a year. And this, if the farmer doesn't have, isn't, isn't counting on the fact that he can have 10,000 bucks in his pocket to hand to his uncle every year, he instead says, well, listen, I've got this farm. Uncle, I will, and they work it out, and they say, I'll give you this parcel of land on my farm. And this parcel of land, if it's all things being equal, should produce enough crops to cover the $10,000. In which case, the uncle has his people work this part of the land, and he reaps the harvest. And he counts it up, and if it's 10000 he takes 10000 off the, the debt. If it's 12000 12000 comes off. If it's a really productive bit of land and, and the nephew can pay it off quicker, more power to him. You're allowed to pay it off anytime. That, and then, of course, after the 10 years, when all of this is paid off, the jubilee comes. So, and the money, go, there's no more payments to the uncle and the land returns to the farmer. You'll notice, jubilee is not about debt forgiveness. It's about debt repayment. Now, you could have debts forgiven if this farmer fell on hard times and couldn't pay it all back and he had some outstanding amounts, it would be forgiven. But that was not the intent of Jubilee, to just forgive debts. And we're going to see what the intent was. I won't go into that. It's in the next point. But let me use another example because there's there's scenarios here. Let's imagine that the, the nephew can't pay it all back. It's too big a burden. He doesn't have the money. The ground isn't productive enough. He has no way. Well, what he does then is he says, uncle, you can have all my land, not just the parcel. You can lease it entirely. And what happens then is the farmer stops for that season anyway, being a landowner, and he becomes a wage laborer on the land. He says, all the produce is for you. All of it's for you, uncle. I will work as your manager or whatever. And he gets paid a salary to work there. And that hopefully offsets the cost. You see the sad farmer there. I put a sad face on him. Because the other option is, what if even that isn't enough? What if the debt is so great it can't be paid off like that? Then the other option, which is extreme, but it happened, is the man would have to sell himself and maybe his family into slavery. Meaning, they work the farm for his uncle and they get no salary. They just get room and board like a slave would. So they're not treated harshly because they're told very clearly, don't treat them harshly. But it means they're just living to survive, right? They're, they're, they're not getting anything back. And that is one of the options. But of course, what happens is that when the term ends, hopefully, the debt has been paid off in full. If not, Jubilee comes and it cancels it. The man ceases to be a slave or a laborer, and he becomes back the, the land that he's leased to his uncle becomes his own, and the debt is paid. Now, like I said, you're going to notice Jubilee is not for debt forgiveness. This is the problem the world has. They think that what the Bible is saying is freedom for everybody. Let's just sign everything off. That's not the point. And we're going to see what the point is in a minute. Let me use one more scenario. You may be thinking this if you're crooked like me. I'm thinking, well, boy, you know what I would do? I'd wait till the 48th year and I'd take out a billion dollars 
live like a king, and then, sorry, Jubilee, can't pay it. Tough bananas for you. But, you know, um, creditors were no less savvy then than they are now. If somebody comes to uh, his uncle, if, if the nephew comes to the uncle and says, I need 100000 for my for my farm, the uncle will under, he, he didn't have $100,000 in his pocket because he's dumb. He'll say, cool, come back to me in a year. Come back to me when the year of Jubilee has been announced, and then we'll start fresh. And then you can work out a real payment term and everything. But nobody would be foolish enough to just lend the money last minute. But that's, just, that's basically what the year of Jubilee is. That's how it works. Now, if that's what it is, what's the point? What's the point of it? And the point is very simple. There's two things God, well, there's many more, but two is what we have time for. Two things that God is trying to do. He is trying to limit something, and he's trying to protect something. So the first thing he's doing is he's trying to limit human sin. Now, think about, I mean, it's, the Jubilee is so rigorous, rigorously just. It's unbendingly just, because here's what it's saying. If you're a debtor, if you're somebody who's taken on a lot of debt, you can't just cancel it. There's no bankruptcy claim. Can't do it. You can't just get weasel your way out. You must pay your debt. So the terms are, you pay your debt. So you have to. And people think, oh, that doesn't seem very nice of God. Hold on. Even when Iceland wrote off all those mortgages, they didn't just disappear. Somebody ate the cost, right? Was it the bank? Was it the government? If somebody breaks my iPhone and I forgive them, Make no mistake, I have to repay the iPhone. I absorb the cost. And so what God is saying in the year of Jubilee is, you made a debt, and it's important that you know you have to pay a debt, because remember the cross, right? Later on, we're going to get to the cross. And if you think debts are small, insignificant things, you're going to think nothing of what Christ did for you on the cross. Debts are important. Pay them, and pay them in full. But it also limits the creditor. So yes, the debtor can't be a, a swindler, but the creditor also can't just say, I can't wait, this guy's in dire straits, I'm going to rake him over the coals. I'm going to set interest on this guy that's going to keep him paying interest for years. He'll never touch the principal. So God says, no, no interest, can't do it. And no setting the terms so that he and his kids and his grandkids are beggared forever. No, everything is limited. One, there's no interest. And people say, so we, listen, we all pay interest, and some of us may even lend. I don't know what you do, not all of you. And we, we think, it's just, isn't it? It's right. I have family members who have said, no, it's right that I get interest on when I lend somebody money because they have a need, and I am bearing the risk if they, if they forfeit. And God comes counterculturally, counterintuitively, and says, you deserve nothing. You are given wealth by God so that you may bear the burdens of the needy. You don't have the right to profit because of it. And this is, this is why it's so incredibly radical and why we're going to see in a minute why we, we can't really implement it. Because to be this sort of a person is more than we can bear. To say, somebody needs help and I'm going to help them even to the point of potentially beggaring myself. This is radical, isn't it? This person needs money. If I help them, I'll spend everything in my savings to do it. And we have to do it. We have to bear that cost. We have to pay it because that's why you're given the wealth in the first place. And so God says no interest. And not just no interest, but you must not let these terms last forever. This is why he sets the very simple rule. Whatever terms you set for repayment, it must end at the Jubilee. 
No, having it linger on forever and ever and ever. So he's trying to limit our sin. That's what Jubilee does because me as a debtor, I'll want to swindle somebody and take all of Visa's money and then get away without paying it, right? And then the creditor is also being told his sin, his sin can't run away with him either. So Jubilee holds everything, keeps the, this, keeps the world just economically. Now, it doesn't just do that. It also protects something. The Jubilee protects humanity's mandate. Remember when God creates humanity in Genesis 1 and 2? He makes very clear what they are supposed to be. You are my idols, my images. Uh, sorry, I used the word idol. I confused people before. The Hebrew word for your image of God is the idol of God. We could talk about that after the coffee. But that's, he makes images. And he says, your job now is to flourish, to go out into the world and cultivate it, to put your hands in the dirt and build it, to make a civilization that reflects God's grace and God's goodness and his glory. To do that, a people must be free to do it. And interest and speculation on land and poverty and exploitation work against that mandate. Instead of freeing people to be what God has called them, those things serve to pull man and to restrain them, which it means it works against God's mandate. And that is one of these things he's trying to do. In other words, what he is very clearly, I think, doing here is he is saying, a child, so for my kids, they should not be burdened by my choices, my incompetence, whatever, my, whatever I've done shouldn't linger on to my kids because they should be free to serve God. Remember what happens on the land, right? They, on the land is where you build family, you build everything, where you worship. And if I beggar my children to that, then the mandate of God is, is reduced. It's, it's, they're unable to flourish. And so God sets the jubilee and says, no, every generation will have the right to mess their own lives up. Hopefully not, but they do continually. And so the mandate, this jubilee comes to limit our sin, but also to protect what God is calling us to do. And you see God's anger towards this, uh, towards speculation and land consumption in Isaiah 5, verse 8, when he says, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. God doesn't like it. Land speculation was not something that was biblical. Now, we're going to talk about Now, before we move on to the next part, I'm going to have to address something important and say just a few words as to what Jubilee is not saying. Because many people are using Jubilee inside and outside the church to justify political things and economic things or socialism. You know, the Bible's communist at heart. People say things like that. So let me address some of this. Four things quickly. One, Jubilee was not given to forgive debts. Okay, that's the first thing. We've talked about that already. It can forgive debts. That is the point at the end. But ideally, there should be no debts to forgive at the end of Jubilee. That's the way it should work. But it, so it's not primarily that. So when we read in the newspapers that people are asking Trudeau to forgive the debt of poorer countries that they owe Canada, they, they say, but the Bible says it. No, the Bible does not say that. And besides that, the Bible is telling Israel what to do. Israel, not Canada, not Canaan, not Assyria. He's telling the people of God, this is an inside voice. This is how we should deal with one another. If there's a need here, we meet each other's debts. We don't tell the world what to do because they're, of course they're not going to do it. They don't even acknowledge God. So Jubilee is not to forgive debts um, primarily. Second, 
It is not meant to eliminate income disparity. Some people think that the idea is to um, not have any rich people among us, like as if having money is a sin. That's not true. There's plenty of room within Israel's economic system to allow for people who are industrious, creative, ingenious, clever, to make money and to grow wealth honorably without exploiting people, right? There's a lot of room in there. There's no sense anywhere that Jubilee is trying to say there should be no wealthy among you. No, he's saying there should be no injustice among you. It's a big difference there. So we can't use it as an excuse to say down with the rich in Canada. Third thing, and again, we can say more, is it's not trying to redistribute wealth. People often use this too. They say, oh, we need redistribution of wealth. As, but we you know what the Jubilee doesn't do. It doesn't say, hey, Israel, put all your money in a pot and then we're going to give it out evenly to everybody. There's no sense of that. You don't get anything more. You, get, you go back to what God gave you, your ancestral land and your freedom. That's what you get. So there's no sense in there being a redistribution of wealth in this Jubilee. And lastly, though we could say more, is it does not eliminate private property. Um, the land is God's. He says very clearly, it's my land, but I have given it to these tribes in Israel. I've assigned it to Judah and Benjamin and whoever, Ephraim, all of them. Now, it's your land. No one can take it from you but me, says God. So as a result, you can't sell it to somebody else, and they can't steal it from you, or they shouldn't. God is saying, no, nobody takes the land but me. It's God's land, and now he's given it to Israel. Now, here's the difference between what Jubilee says and what socialism says. And I have to say this, you may not understand, but if you're politically inclined, you'll know what I mean. I often hear the left wings and the socialists and everybody on every side saying, the Bible promotes socialism, common ownership. No, it doesn't. Socialism says no one should own land. The Jubilee says no one should lose land. It's a very big difference. You may have to sit and think about it for a while. I don't have time to go into it. Socialism says no one should own land. Jubilee says no one should lose land. Okay? So, that's Jubilee. Many things else we could say, but let's leave it there. So, what is it we've heard? What is it for? It's to limit our sin and to protect something. But here's the big crux. This is why it's insufficient. This is why the law always points us and leads us to a point of realizing how insufficient it is. It's because, here's one important fact. Did you know there's no evidence in Israel's history of them ever having observed Jubilee? They just never did it. Some people debate it. They say, oh, maybe there's evidence of them trying here or there. But the simple fact is this. We know Israel either refused to do it because they said, it's too hard. We can't do it. Could you imagine the world forgiving all debts right now? It's mind-blowing. I wouldn't even know where to begin. So we know they either just refused to do it or they tried it and failed and said, forget it, it's too hard which leads us to the very savvy comments of G.K. Chesterton, an old, well, I think he was a Catholic, but a brilliant, brilliant guy when he says, um, where is it here? The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. He's right. Jubilee is too hard. It demands too much of us. It demands, see, this is why I have to pick on the secular world when I hear them calling for um, the, you know, the resurrection of the idea of Jubilee and we should all forgive debts and we'd have a better country and a better world. The reason they do that is because they're misinformed about what Jubilee is. They are under the impression that Jubilee is about doing something rather than about being something. You see, in order to, be, to do, 
the things Jubilee asks you to do, which is forgive debts, absorb debts, and so on, it means you have to be the kind of person who is willing to absorb a debt instead of exact a debt. Nobody does that. We can't do it. And so when the, when the world says, Jubilee, Jubilee, let's forgive debts, that's, they're doing... When the world starts clamoring, okay, starts to clamor for uh, forgiveness of debts, I know they're just doing exactly what we've done forever. They're trying to get what Jesus offers without getting Jesus. We want to get the nice world and the fair, equal world, but we don't want the Jesus that comes with it. And because they're doing that, they're putting the cart and the horse in the wrong space. They're never going to be able to do it, and I'll explain. And Jesus himself tells us why. Let me, let me show you this. If, in order to get the Jubilee to work, we have to be the kind of people who, on twofold, on one side, we have to be willing to pay a debt that we'd rather evade. Right? Some of us try to squirm out of our debts. Don't we all wish that an old aunt would die and leave us a billion dollars? Or some miraculous, you win the lottery, but you never play it, but you think, oh, maybe I'll win it. Don't you just wish for a windfall to wipe out the debt? See, we deep down don't want to pay the debts we have. We want to be free of them somehow. So for Jubilee to work, you have to be the kind of person who wants to pay the debt, which is difficult. And on the other side, you have to be the sort of creditor who is willing to absorb a debt when somebody needs help, even if it costs you everything. This is Christ, right? He was willing to not just give up something for you, but to become your poverty. He didn't just loan you money, he took on your poverty. And to become that is very difficult, if not, no, no not if not, it's impossible for you and I. So, where do we go from here? Where is the hope? Is there any hope? Well, yes, I said it was Christmas, and here's where it is, it's Jesus. When Jesus is born, the very first thing he does in his ministry, though, right? So he's born, he has his, little, his, his life, he's raised, he spends time in the temple, and didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? He says all these things. He then gets tempted in the, in the wilderness. His very first act of public ministry in Luke 4 is he is called to Nazareth, his hometown, and he's asked to speak at the synagogue. It's almost like if somebody who was an old Redeemer friend came back to visit, and I asked him to come up and read this passage before the sermon. And he comes up, and he opens up the scroll to Isaiah. And he thumbs through it, it says, and it looks, Luke actually paraphrases. It looks like Jesus paraphrased part of Luke 61, or sorry, Isaiah 61 and 58. But this is what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the, at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he's using jubilee language on purpose. And do you notice what he does? He doesn't come and say, I have come, now start observing the jubilee. He doesn't say start doing it. Instead, he first declares freedom for them, right? Because he realizes unless you're free, you're not going to be able to observe this thing anyway. But you have to point out a contradiction here. We have to, as Christians. It's something we have to at least, that's not a contradiction, but it seems like one. Jesus say, comes and he says, Forgiveness, freedom, all this is proclaimed. But do you notice that no one's really set free? He says this, but not one slave is all of a sudden no longer a slave to his master. He says, no, debts are forgiven. No, they're not. Everybody he's speaking to still owes money. And when he dies and is raised, people are still slaves physically, aren't they? They're still there. So we have to at least ask the question, what is he talking about? 
Because he can't be saying what Jubilee is saying. Jubilee is, is something that was meant to effect a change in your physical circumstances. Your money and your debt, your physical debt is gone. Your physical relationship of slavery is removed. If that's what Jesus is saying, then he's a liar. Because nobody is, ceases to be a slave when he says it, right? So what is he saying? Well, the answer actually comes not in what he's saying, but what he doesn't say. Because if you look at Luke 61, you'll notice Jesus says it, but he stops. He doesn't quote the whole passage. Look at what he says. This is Luke. This is Isaiah, sorry. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Why doesn't he say that? Why does he stop short of announcing judgment? The answer is because he is your jubilee. He knows that he coming is he is going to come and bear the judgment, so he doesn't need to announce it to you. There's no day of vengeance for you if you accept him as your jubilee. So what he's saying, he's saying this, I'm not coming to free you from your debts because if I did that, your physical debts, you know what's going to happen? You're going to be indebted again. Because, listen, I was a student at university. You know why the universities at Frosh Week always have the visa guy sitting right at the front? Because you're stupid. Because <laughs> I was stupid. Because you're a 19-year-old who has the opportunity now to have a credit card. So you get, you know, your $500 limit. Then you get your $1,000 limit. Before you know it, you're paying for school and you're paying for hot dogs and everything else you've eaten over a century. Because we are dumb. We will continually put ourselves back into debt. We're really good at it. Now there may be some people who say, no, I'm never in debt. Careful. Because if you're not in debt with money, you're just in debt to your own pride. So just be careful. We're always in debt. So what Christ comes, he says, I can't free you from your physical problems unless I first free you from what's really holding you, which is your pride, your ego, your greed, these things must be broken before you could ever observe Jubilee. This is why the Washington Post is wrong. Jubilee is not going to help the world. Trust me, we'll find some other way to put each other in each other's debt. We're really good at that. And so he comes and he says, first I must break you from this. And when he comes, he says, I am absorbing this debt. I come and I will absorb this day of vengeance, of the, the day of God's vengeance. I will absorb that for you. So that when you see a friend in need, you don't need to say... I better make my money while I can because retirement's coming. And then you want to take advantage of somebody. Instead, that insecurity's gone because you know God's looked after you. He's taken care of all of it. There's no debt you need to pay off for God anymore. And because you no longer feel the need to secure your own future, you don't need to try to do it on somebody, the back of someone else. And then you don't try to evade paying a debt because you realize, my goodness, Christ, if he had evaded my debt, where would I be? And so you become transformed. And until you accept Christ, the baby in the manger, you're never going to have a jubilee because Christ is your jubilee. This is where it's pointing us to. This is why the angel can say, I bring you good news of great joy. You see, it's not good news unless he has actually removed the opportunity and the potential for you to ever fall into debt again. It's not good news if somebody removes my mortgage because I still have a visa debt or a line of credit, or whatever it is. It's not even good enough if somebody comes and saves my life from cancer because I'm still going to die. You just added some years to my life, which is great, but you haven't actually fixed the death problem I have. Christ comes and says, I deal with that death problem. I deal with the debt problem. So you don't need to ever incur the debt. Now, we continually do. 
but jubilee. Jubilee is we're looking for removal of physical debts when Christ is saying, you have a bigger debt you have to pay. And it's been paid by God. And that's what Christmas is. The only hope of freedom is that baby in the manger. It's the only hope. Every other master we turn to will beggar us and put us in their debt. If you think your job and your bank account will save you, you're going to be forever enslaved to that job because you'll be wracked with anxiety when it's a potential of losing it because you'll think that's how I'm going to live. People want to buy houses now because this is the way you save for your future because the housing market is crazy. And you get crazy thinking, if I don't have a house, if I don't own a house, where's my future? You see what's happened? You become a slave to the real estate racket. Christ comes and he's trying to tell you there's nothing you need to be enslaved to any longer. Nothing. Because Jubilee has been proclaimed. It's in Christ. That's all I have. Let's pray.